Over these last four Sundays together, we have been spending Sunday morning exploring together this spectacular passage in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. So please turn with me in your Bible this morning to Isaiah chapter 9 as we read together verses 1 through 6. And you'll find it on page 1072 in the Pew Bible. For those watching at home, if you have your Bible with you, please open up Isaiah. And as we study together, please follow with us at home as well. Isaiah chapter 9. To put Isaiah chapter 9 in its context, it's helpful to know that when Isaiah is writing, it's around the year 722 BC. So it's a long way before the birth of Christ. And the Assyrian army from the east has moved, as you look at a map, it's coming this way, of course, has moved to the west and conquered Israel, who is the northern kingdom, and Judah is the southern kingdom. And Israel has been conquered, and the people in Judah are living in fear of their very lives, because they expect any day that the Assyrians will invade the southern kingdom of Judah. And so chapter 8 finishes, in fact, with a note of distress and darkness and fear and gloom. And people are genuinely, as I said moments ago, fearful for their life. And so that puts it in a little context. And then Isaiah begins to write chapter 9. And he writes these words. Nevertheless... There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. And the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, they have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. Christmas, as each of us knows, is an almost magical time of year. It is filled with fond memories, moments of great fun, especially as we go into this final week leading up to Christmas Day itself. And this is the week when we find ourselves involved in last-minute panic, because of that one thing we forgot to buy for that special person or we finalize our Christmas meal and it is a week that usually is a little frenetic and busy but also it's a time when we meet with family and friends we complete the decoration of the trees we do the last minute wrapping and it is filled with fun 
And this morning, I thought I would have a little fun with some well-known Christmas songs. Now, you did not honestly think that my first Sunday back with you, I wouldn't have a little fun. Of course I would. And here are politically correct Christmas songs. Grandma. A physically and mentally healthy individual who's fully capable of taking care of herself as a mature adult allegedly got run over by a non-human perpetrator. And I think you know the name of the song. Number two, have yourself a merry little non-denominational winter holiday. It kind of loses something, doesn't it? Number three, Frosty, the gender-neutral self-identifying snow person. And of course, we immediately know the song. Number four, chestnuts roasting on a safely contained, constantly monitored, eco-friendly, non-toxic outdoor fire for which I have a permit. And we know what's going on there. And next, Hark the Herald, Mythical Winged Creature Sing. And finally, I saw Mummy greeting Santa Claus with a purely platonic expression of inoffensive mutual affection. Christmas is that time of year for having fun. And it is healthy for us at times to poke fun at ourselves, is it not? And when we use words like this, we see the funny side of it. But we also know that words matter. And at this time of year... The words matter because they allow us to express our deepest desires, our heartfelt emotions when we sing Christmas carols, when we pause and pray, when we present someone with a Christmas gift and tell them that we love them. Words matter. And when Isaiah was writing 700 years, slightly more than that, before the birth of Christ, and he put together this wonderful verse in verse 6, the question we've been asking over these last Sundays together is, what exactly did he mean when he wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, which we looked at first Sunday together, then Mighty God last Sunday, and today Everlasting Father. And eventually we'll touch on Prince of Peace. And so when we talk of this child to be born, the question is, how can he possibly be a son, a child, Mighty God, and Everlasting Father all in one? It kind of feels a little self-contradictory. And as you look at the passage in front of you, what you see is Isaiah starts chapter 9, writing prose. And then in in verse 2, it changes to prophecy. And that prophecy is written as poetry. And so we begin to say, here is Isaiah getting our attention, telling us something special is happening here. And he's writing with a sense of anticipation. He's writing what is exciting. He's optimistic. In fact, he's so confident in his writing, he's looking forward to the coming of the Christ child, and he writes as if it has already taken place. Look at it. For to us a child is 
born. To us, a son is given. He is so confident in God fulfilling his eternal purposes and decrees. It's in no doubt in Isaiah's mind. And he's looking forward with great anticipation and expectation to see the unfolding of the supernatural purposes and plans of God. In fact, Old Testament scholars tell us that this style of writing is called supra-historical. In other words, not only is it history to be fulfilled, not only is it prophetic, but Isaiah is standing back looking at the purposes of God from 37,000 feet, if you like. He's looking at the big picture. He's seeing the unfolding of God's eternal purposes and salvation for humanity. And that's why at this time of year, we go back and read Isaiah, understanding and recognizing the wonder of all that is happening here. And so this morning, as we come to Everlasting Father, we pause there. And we pause quite intentionally. And it may be, as I said moments ago, you're asking, how can a child to be born, how can a son be given, also be an everlasting father? Because when Isaiah is writing, he is describing the eternal qualities of God. And throughout Scripture, God is portrayed as he who is infinite, eternal. The one who in his own, and please forgive me for this, it's a little technical, in his own ontological being is self-existent and self-sufficient. In other words, in his own nature, he is very God of very God. We recited it moments ago in the Nicene Creed. And here is Isaiah saying, this child to be born, the son that is given, is also mighty God and everlasting Father. And as everlasting, he doesn't need to rush anything. He doesn't at the last minute say, oh, you know, I forgot about that. Maybe I need to take action now. This is not a picture of God three days after Christmas, still with leftovers, thinking, what can I make the family? We've had turkey, we've had turkey soup, we've had turkey sandwiches. What can I do with the leftovers? Putting it all together, and if I add enough gravy, surely it will taste okay. That's not what's happening here. God carefully, patiently perseveres. And painstakingly brings to pass his purpose and his will for humanity. And he does so carefully. In other words, please don't think in your mind this week. That God happens just by chance. Watches a couple come from... Nazareth to Bethlehem. And says, oh... Here's an opportunity. I'll tell you what. Why don't I give this lovely, nice couple the Son of God to raise? And I can begin humanity's eternal redemption. No. God is not like us. Sometimes I would have to say I get impatient, anxious, impetuous. I suspect you might be the same at times, especially the week coming up. 
But that's not God. Methodically, carefully, thoughtfully, putting into place 700 years before it comes to pass his purpose and his will. And God sovereignly, in eternity past, plans for the salvation of humanity. Now let me ask you to use your imagination this morning. Go back in time in your own mind, way before time itself began, before matter was made, before anything existed. And God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in person, one in essence, lovingly, graciously, kindly, planning and preparing to create a world in order that we might come to know his transforming love and grace and enter into a relationship with him. That's the picture you're having here with everlasting Father. Not chance, not accident, but God planning, preparing, bringing to pass his eternal purposes and decrees. Not simply out of wishes and hopes and a hodgepodge of last minute plans, but the very opposite. In fact, the scripture tells us this, before the foundation of the world, God set his love and affection on us. What a wonderful picture. To us, a son is given. To us, a child is born. Mighty God, everlasting Father. So for those of you who are already saying, okay, Richard, I think I'm with you this morning, but can you tease out a little more? I get the everlasting part. Tease out a little more about the father part. Help me understand how a child and a father can be the same thing. Well, let me refer you to John's gospel when disciples were asking similar questions. When they say, let me jump on here, when Jesus is speaking and says this, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's the point Jesus is making. And whenever you think of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the two words I like to have in the back of my mind is union and communion. Union meaning that when one acts three act. One never acts independently of the other two. The two never act independently of the one. And that's why Isaiah with great confidence and anticipation and excitement can say, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and incidentally he will be mighty God. One in essence, three in persons. He is Emmanuel, God with us. It's not that God sent a substitute. It's not that he texts us and said, do you know? He didn't send an iPad so we could stay in touch. He sent himself in the form of his only begotten. 
Did you pick that up in the Nicene Creed? Not created, begotten. One in essence. And the scriptures tell us that all of the rights, privileges, authority, and attributes of God are given to Jesus and the Holy Spirit every bit as much as they are the Father. And that's what's going on here. And that's why Jesus speaks in these terms. If you know me, you know the Father. I am in him and he is in me. Remember we said union acting together and now we see communion. Deep, deep intimacy between Father, Son and Spirit. And as we tease it out further, please remember this. Not only is he everlasting and Father, but he's a Father to us. And what does that mean? It means this. The Apostle John, who wrote, as you know, the Gospel of John, and then what's called the Johannine Epistles, right at the end of the New Testament, he writes these words. He writes in that first epistle, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Children of God. When we say, Our Father who art in heaven. These are not empty words said by rote. These are not meaningless phrases we use because he is our father and our relationship with him is predicated on exactly that, a relationship. It's not empty liturgy, certain words said at certain times. It's because of a relationship. And notice what John says. Remember when John is writing, he's probably in his late 80s, 90, 91 years old. He's had a long time to look back over his life And remember all that Christ achieved for him. And in thinking of the Father, he he writes, See what great love the Father has lavished upon us. Lavished upon us. Not grudgingly, not sparingly, not, oh dear, it's them again. Do I have to listen to their prayers today? It's the very opposite. It's like your child coming to you and jumping up onto your lap. And what do you do as a parent or a grandparent? You immediately put your arms around them and hold them close. It's a relationship of love and grace. That's what's happening right here. Now you may be tempted to say, okay, Richard, I think I hear that. I think I get that. Well, let me make one more point and then I'll move to what difference does all of this make for us in this week leading up to Christmas Day? And I wanted intentionally to wrap up this first part of the study on the person of the child to be born who is not only a son but mighty God and everlasting Father and to say this Scripture is crystal clear. The church for the last 2,000 years has also been clear on this. Infinity itself cannot contain him. Eternity cannot encompass him. Kings gathered to worship him. 
History is defined by him. God's eternal decrees are fulfilled in him. The prophetic sonnets of eternity past speak of him as we have been studying this morning. And the salvation of all humanity is found in him. That's why Isaiah chapter 9 is so exciting. That's why he writes with great confidence. That's why he's looking forward with a sense of excitement and anticipation. That's why this week, as we begin to make our descent to Christmas Day itself, as individuals, as families, we get excited, and we should. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Now, you may be sitting there saying, okay, Richard, I've got it, and I'm glad you're going to talk about what difference does it make to us this week. Because, Richard, quite frankly, the last few months have been tough for me. I have been engaged, and tension has crept into that relationship not only am I struggling with my fiancé, I'm struggling with her family. This should have been the most blessed experience once we announced their engagement. We're looking forward with great anticipation to the wedding. And yet, there's been a little tension and difficulty. And I'm feeling a little estranged from them at the moment. And Richard, quite honestly, as I was coming to church this morning, and even as I'm sitting here, I'm wondering why on earth am I here? Because over the last few weeks I have prayed and prayed and prayed, and God has not answered, and the tension is still there. What on earth am I going to do? And frankly, Richard, I'm a little disappointed. Because I was convinced that if I had a relationship with my Heavenly Father, He would in fact sort out the difficulty I'm facing. He would have answered my prayer. But I prayed and prayed and nothing. He is, heaven is silent. Nothing is happening. And I mentioned a similar scenario a couple of weeks back to the 11 o'clock service. Same principle. What do you then do? Well... If that describes you or describes a member of your family or a situation you are facing, may I suggest this? Some 2,000 years ago, Joseph had the same problem. Newly engaged, looking forward with great anticipation, should have been the most joyous experience of his life. And then Mary broke the news. And to make matters worse, she said, God has done this. And Joseph, I imagine, prayed and prayed and prayed and not much happened for several weeks. So what do you do when heaven is silent? What do you do when God is not speaking into your life? Well, may I suggest this? And let me give you three principles. And we've touched on these before. They're not new. We touched on them two weeks ago at the 11 o'clock service. But these are principles worth learning again and again. If you're putting notes in the margin of your Bible, these are worth putting down there. Number one, the first principle. You can trust him while you wait. Joseph 
had nine months to learn how to trust him. So did Mary. For Mary, the news was every bit as shocking, every bit as fantastic, every bit as how could this possibly be happening, especially in those early days. And please hear me when I say this. When God interrupts your life and he begins to work in a manner that means he is molding you and shaping you and transforming you, it's usually painful and it's often messy and it takes time. But in the midst of it all, he's drawing you into maturity. He's enabling you to grow. And if you are saying, Richard, I hear that, I understand the principle, but he is not speaking into my life. What can I do? And let me push back ever so gently and say this. He has already spoken into your life. Try reading Isaiah chapter 9 where he says, Unto you a son is given. Unto you a child is born. And he is mighty God, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. How much more do you need or want? And the point Isaiah is making is this. In dark and difficult days, which Isaiah was facing, he said, you can trust him. Regardless, you can trust him. And that's the moment when you dig deep. That's the moment when commitment is conceived and birthed. That's the moment when prayerfully you begin to say, Father, I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why things are falling apart, but I will trust you in the midst of it. That's what's going on. Second principle, and again, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Learn to embrace the uncertainty. That's hard. That's very difficult because we want to know what's coming. We want to know what the plan for our future is. We want certainty. But it does not always work that way. I was telling the 11 o'clock service recently that the 8-year-old who lives across the street, along with her sister who's 12, come over for story time. And Kate, who's 8, popped up onto my lap and we were well in fact she didn't she's getting too big for my lap but she got as close to me as we she could on the couch and we're reading a book together and we were reading a book that I had written back in 2014-15 something like that and Kate's in the book and she had forgotten entirely and so as we're reading it she comes across her name and she's reading the story and she sees herself in the story and I get this wonderful big smile and as you can imagine it was well worth reading the book just for the smile itself and we agreed that Kate would read the first line I would read the second and so on and her reading's coming on and she got so excited she didn't leave room for me to read and she read the whole page And then the second page I wanted to read, so I butted in and started reading the second page. And she said, I've got it. I've got it. When you're fearful, concerned, uncertain, please understand this. He's got it. And more than that, he's got you. Advent's a season for waiting. It's not a season for sitting back just twiddling your thumbs. It's not a season for pulling out your phone every now and again to see if God is saying something. 
is a season when we ask ourselves some serious questions. Are we spending more time decorating our trees and our homes than we are in prayer? Are we spending more time looking for that one perfect gift than we are spending in his presence? May this week be a week when you sense his hand upon you. When you understand again. When you're overwhelmed by his love. And refreshed by his promise. For unto you a child is born. To you a son has already been given. And he is mighty God. Everlasting father. Prince of peace. And you can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. And in this week leading up to Christmas Day, you are indeed our everlasting Father. You who have loved us since before the beginning of time. Enable those of us who are struggling this week to rest in you. To bring our fears and concerns and uncertainties and lay them before you. And may your comforting presence and tender touch be a living reality for us this week. In Jesus' name we pray.